We've got a little surprise for Scott. Um, I'm going to be joined by Naomi again. And uh, Naomi is a Hebrew scholar, which is fantastic. And uh, she's going to do the first of something called What's in a Word? And we're going to learn uh, stuff from one or two Hebrew words. So Naomi is going to begin this time, and then I'll pick up on the book of Numbers. Thank you, Nigel. Well, I'm so excited. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, some of you may know my, my mum's um, Israeli, and um, I've been trying to learn Hebrew for about 50 years, um, <laughs> and uh, still going. Um, but I've... Um, I've just, uh, yeah, recently, um, relatively recently, the last few years, sort of read some stuff and studied a bit and just I'm so excited by God's, the language that God chose to reveal himself to mankind, his, his, his best way of revealing his thoughts and his, his character and his mind to us. He chose this language. And I just want to open up one or two things to you about this language um, and, um, and then bring a, a, word, you know, a word for you, which I think will be relevant to our, to our uh, subject. Um, so, um, yes, so very much fit for purpose. If we go to... Right, now, don't get confused about this. Don't panic, right? <laughs> but I want to show you that Hebrew was a language that was created from pictures. And that in itself is quite exciting because we are very visual creatures, aren't we? And God is like... And the, the thing about pictures is that they're not absolutely definite, are they? They're, you can look at them from sort of slightly different angles and different people will see slightly different things in them and they represent and they mean things immediately to you so Hebrew is based on pictures now the pictures um, what I've done here is I've basically um, shown um, how um, a word develops and we're going to look at the word word it's a good place to start, isn't it? <laughs> and, and some of you may know that um, the book of Deuteronomy, which we're going to study next, um, in the Hebrew Bible, it's called Deborim, which means it's the plural of word, Debar. Debar is the word for word. And Deborim is the words. Okay, so the book of Deuteronomy be- begins with the words of God and blah, 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 blah. So the, 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 the Hebrew Bible tends, they, they call the, the, the Torah, the books of Torah by the first um, words that appear in the in the first line of the books. Okay, so Deuteronomy starts with the words, so it's called Debarim. So I'm going to show you a bit about Debar. Okay, so Debar um, has uh, the thing about Hebrew again is, is that every word is built up of pictures. It's built up of letters. And the letters are, go back to the pictures, are derived from original pictures. And then you put the pictures together and they make the word. And m- virtually all Hebrew words have a three-letter root. Okay? It's not always obvious what those three letters are because there seem to be lots of letters sometimes in Hebrew words and you think, okay, which is the root? But every word is derived from a root and that in itself is quite interesting, exciting. We can build on that in, uh, perhaps um, in the future as well. So you start with a picture, you then get a simplified picture which is then becomes a letter and then you put the letters together and they become words or concepts. Get that? Yeah? So it's not like a Greek word. Right, 
the word dad, for example, just means dad. You, you, know, you, don't, you don't see pictures necessarily from it. It's just what it is. But Hebrew, you see layers, layers, and it's like an onion, and you keep peeling it back, and you can make links, and you can... Anyway, we'll come to that later. So it started with these funny languages here. So you've got this... Um, thing I've called this thing I've called proto Canaanite. That was the original. So you have this picture, and then the proto Canaanite. That was about two thousand something years ago. Um, and then the Phoenician Old Hebrew. It became it sort of evolved into Phoenician Old Hebrew, and then it devolved into Hebrew, and didn't evolve into Hebrew. And so, did anybody know when Hebrew kind of came into use? Anybody know? Okay, it was the Babylonian time. So when Israel went into exile. In Babylon, that's kind of when Hebrew began to be developed, okay, from these old other languages. Before that, so Moses would not have had Hebrew, okay? He would have had, uh, well, probably Phoenician Old Hebrew. So, you know, it's, it, 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 it developed, okay? Um, and um, so, yeah, around 550 BC in the Battle of Bolognese, it was when Hebrew sort of more came to be into use. And that's when you began the, the scribes. Do you remember Ezra was a scribe? Yeah? That's when that sort of started. So that whole thing about scribes, they were transcribing and developing the Hebrew. So, okay, so we've got the concept. We've got the first line there, which is the, the, let, the first letter of the three-letter root of the word debar is dalit. Okay, and if you look over onto the left, I find this a bit of a struggle, but that is supposed to be a door. It represents a door to somebody, or it did. Um, and then that became this sort of triangular thing, shape thing. And then from that, somebody sort of, I don't know, tipped it on its head or something, and it became that letter there, which is Dalid. Okay, so it's like two sides of a square. Okay, so just remember that that's door. Okay, so then the next letter is, if we go on to the next slide. Okay, so we get the next one down. The next letter is bet, bet or bait. Sometimes I say bait. So you remember um, Bethlehem? Bethlehem, yeah. Bait is house. Lechem is bread. Bethlehem, um, house of bread. Okay, so you're kind of getting the picture. Um, and bait started off as that funny little thing there. That you could, could sort of call that a house, couldn't you, with a little door entrance? Um, and then there's that weird thing there. Um, and then that became that weird thing became that shape there, bait. Okay, right. Next one. Last letter in the root of debar is resh. Now, Resh um, started off from something that looks like, well, that's supposed to be a man's head. It looks more like a pigeon's head to me. But anyway, um, <laughs> it's supposed to be a man's head. And then it became that little flag thing. And then it became Resh. Okay? So we've now got, get this, this is, this is the good bit. You've now got door, house, head, or mind. So can you see door into the house of the mind? word pretty good isn't it yeah and and that is kind of that is what i'm trying to try and get you a flavor of that is what we have when we read words in in scripture it's all like that you know these words are full of meanings and layers and not just that but you can then connect them to other words so hebrew scholars do things called strings of pearls 
and they find a they find a word which connects to a particular passage in scripture or whatever and then they string it to another passage and another passage and another passage and that's become a way that that scholars look at look at and, and interpret scripture um, as well so we've got Debar. there's another next slide there we are that's how that how it's, how it's written in modern hebrew um just a very quick one there, which we can probably do another time, actually. So move straight on to the next one uh, again. Okay, so then we finally finish with this word Torah. So that is how Torah is written. And you immediately say, oh, hang on a minute, that's four letters. How do I work out which is the root? <laughs> well, you don't even work it out from that, because the original word that Torah is developed from is this word Yara. Okay, Yara is the original word that the, the Torah is derived from. And yara means an arrow. It actually means shooting an arrow to a target, to a direction. Now, can you see that Torah, the behind the word Torah, is shooting an arrow to the right direction? So now do you get a bit more of an understanding what God is trying to do with his Torah? We translate the word Torah as law, but that's not, that's not really the concept that quite gets it, is it? Because if you're shooting an arrow into a, into a direction, you're pointing away, you're showing away, you're, you, you're kind of, you, it's a direction, it's a way of doing something. And Torah, to, to, the, to Jews, <coughs> means it's a kind of way of living, it's a whole way of living that points you in the right direction. Much deeper, much richer, just than just the word law. Much, yeah, get it? Excited by that? Great, okay. I'm going to hand over to to Nigel. You can uh, teach the rest of the Torah. (laughs) Follow that. Well, who knows the, the main word in Greek for sin in the New Testament? Anyone know that? Paul? <laughs> um, it's hamartia. Okay, it's a different language, Greek, hamartia. What does it mean? What's the meaning behind it in the spirit of Naomi Beer? No? Yep, thank you. It means missing the target. So if Torah is the target to reach to, And naturally, left to our own devices, we miss the target, and that's the main underlying meaning of the word for sin in the New Testament. Then we need Jesus to get to the target. So it's interesting. New and old are even linked. Is that all right, Paul, for a start? I do. Thank you. Good. We're looking at the book of Numbers. And uh, Sam painted a brilliant picture, didn't he, last week? Overall sweep of the book of Numbers. I put him on early. He went on for 55 minutes. You got two preaches for the price of one last week, so he hasn't left me much to say today. Actually, I was reading in the, the, the Times yesterday, and uh, a journalist wrote this. In his early days, Gordon Brown was invited to give a 45-minute talk on pensions to a group of elderly Scots. He dutifully did his talk and rambled on for the full 45 minutes. The host then got up and apologised to the group that their lunch would be cold as it had been sitting so long. Gordon Brown was baffled. He said to the host, why has everything gone wrong? The host replied, 
I said four to five minutes, not 45 minutes, but I haven't got 45 minutes left anyway. I want to think about God's redemptive purposes, and uh, there's three pictures there. What do you think I might be thinking about in the book of Numbers from those three pictures? Balaam's the last one, Balaam's donkey, Adam and Eve, they do come into it, but they're not in the book of Numbers. The serpent on the pole, the bronze serpent, and some tents, the camp of Israel. So we're going to look at something to do with God's redemptive purposes in tents, snakes, and a donkey. And I hope we're going to see their historical events. They happened with the children of Israel at that time, recorded for us in the book of Numbers. But they've also got some contemporary resonances and their relevance today as we see how God wants to continue redeeming the world and has done so through Jesus. And first, very briefly, uh, that's how the camp of Israel was laid out in the desert. And if you look down from a hill, you kind of see a cross shape. Uh, They had uh, three tribes on each side, but they weren't exactly the same size. And so it wasn't a perfectly centralized cross. It was at a uh, a slight, um, one side was longer than the other. But across the desert, back in those times, as God was beginning to redeem a people for himself, moving across those desert lines, when they camped and when they broke camp and advanced was that cross uh, on the desert. And that's just a sign we've focused on the cross for Remembrance Sunday. And that was a a visible sign across the earth of God beginning to move with his people. And next, we look at the snakes. And Sam introduced us to this last week. I'll just read out uh, the basic story for us. Numbers 21, verses 4 to 9. They traveled from Mount Hor along the routes to the Red Sea to go round Edom. But the people grew impatient on the way. They spoke against God and against Moses and said, Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There's no bread, there's no water, and we detest this miserable food. Then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. They bit the people and many Israelites died. The people came to Moses and said, We sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a snake and put it on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it up on a pole. That when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, they lived. And there's some kind of contemporary resonance with that as well. And uh, that picture, anyone know what that picture's from? Pretty horrible picture of a snake. It's from a current exhibition at the Natural History Museum called Venom, Killer and Cure. Has anyone heard of Stephen Ludwin? Anyone heard of Stephen Ludwin? Stephen Ludwin's this uh, weird American guy who injects himself with snake venom. Uh, Don't try this at home because it's quite dangerous. Uh, But the right level of it seems to have some health benefits. I don't know if that... 
He looks quite good for his age, actually, so he gets some benefit. But don't overdo it, because it could be quite dangerous. But he's also trying to develop antibodies uh, so that they can develop new antivenoms from his blood, and they'll cause less allergic reactions than those developed in mammals. Does that sound reasonable? So, anyway, these days there's an uh, uh, exhibition called Venom, Killer and Cure, Snakes being dangerous and poisonous, but also can be a source of cure. Snake venom can kill us, but we can use it to find a cure. And this part of the desert they were going through was notorious for snakes. And uh, Lawrence of Arabia uh, wrote this in the 1920s. So he's he's at the same bit of ground going through it in the 1920s, uh, thousands of years later. He writes, It's hopelessness and sadness is deeper than all the open deserts we'd crossed. There was something sinister, something entirely evil in this snake-devoted area. So the area's known for snakes even up to the last century. Next slide, snakes and poles. It's a medical alert. Anyone got an ID tag? You're wearing that. Remember, uh, Andy Lawrence always wears his uh, medical ID tag. It means that you've got a condition that may need immediate help. And it's either from the rod of Asclepius. Anyone heard of that? That's a Greek from Greek mythology, the god of medicine and healing that was represented as a snake on a pole, or it's a reference to what we see here in the book of Numbers. So a snake can lead to your death, but the snake on the pole is as out of death can come healing and new life. And that's really, really important. So a spiritual application. Where were snakes first found in the Bible? You don't need me to tell you. It's up on the screen. Now, the snake was more crafty, Genesis 3, than any of the wild animals. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the snake, we may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat from the fruit from the tree that's in the middle of the garden. and You must not touch it or you will die. You will certainly not die, the snake said to the woman. The snake was the source of poison and venom to the human race that in response to sin and rebellion against God has led to spiritual death and alienation. And the snake was there in that temptation. And in this story in Numbers, we read that they were in a bad place spiritually they weren't just in a difficult desert they were in a bad place spiritually they were impatient they spoke against God they spoke against Moses why have you brought us here we're gonna die there's no bread there's no water we detest the food that God's given us and then the snakes come so what did God do when the people were being bitten by snakes what could he do? If he'd instantly removed all the snakes, maybe people would have thought, oh, they're gone. It was just a coincidence. If God dropped down medicine from on high, they would have thought, oh, this medicine has healed us. But he got Moses to make this bronze snake and hold it up on a pole, and that was the source of healing. And that's completely miraculous. So the way to be healed 
of being in a bad spiritual condition, a way to be healed of imminent death is to listen to God, to obey God, to look up and to find your healing. And there's a message for us there in the bronze snake. It's not a medicine. The snakes didn't disappear. But if you were bitten, you could look up to this in obedience to God and by faith receive your healing. We're getting some resonances with what God's done for us in Christ. And so finally we move on to the cross of Christ. And Jesus uses this story in one of the most famous passages we know in the Bible, John chapter 3, when he speaks to Nicodemus. And Jesus says, Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. And we saw that cross shape with the camp of Israel moving across the desert. And we see with the bronze on the pole a picture of what God would do for us in redeeming the whole of mankind through what Jesus has done on the cross. They had sinned against God. All of us have sinned and fallen short, missed the target, fallen short of the glory of God. They were rebelling against God. All humankind naturally rebel against God. They had poison in their system, that natural snake bite as well as spiritual poison. We've got spiritual poison in our systems. They could look up and live. We can look up to Jesus on the cross and live. That snake was a a dead bit of metal. Jesus on the cross died, but out of his death we can find life, and it's Satan that's defeated and not God. They needed to look at the snake on the pole straight away without delay, otherwise they're going to drop dead. And the sooner we look at Christ on the cross and find salvation, the better. Delay is damaging and can prove fatal. And interestingly, this was the last time in the desert that the children of Israel said, we want to go back to Egypt. It was better there. We had nice food there. It was nice there, even though they'd been enslaved. This was, this was a real watershed moment when they looked at the snake on the pole and lived. They were ready to move on. And as a people, they stopped talking about going back to Egypt at this point. As we look to Jesus on the cross and we find our healing and salvation in him, then we need to just look forward and rather than hark back to old ways of life and old habits, look forward to the promises of God in the promised land. So residences um, and references to God's redemptive purposes, seeing the cross in the desert, seeing the cross in the snake on the pole. And then finally wants to go to Numbers 21 and 24. And uh, this is, uh, Sam promised us that we get to Moab, promised you last week, so we're going to finish up 
uh, in Moab. And uh, that's a, a more recent map, not back at this time. But you can see that the kingdom of Moab is very close to the Jordan and Jericho. So we're getting near the end of the travels through the desert. And I've called this Moab and the bars because there's four bars there. There's Balak. Who was Balak? Anyone heard of Balak? He was the king of Moab. So we've got Balak, the king of Moab. And then Balaam, who's Balaam or Balaam? He was a soothsayer, I suppose, call him a prophet, soothsayer from the east, a seer that uh, had spiritual power in what he said. And Bamoth Baal was a mountain for pagan sacrifices. So this is Moab and the bars. Israel was pressing on and they'd asked the Amorites if they could pass peacefully through their territory. And the Amorites said no, and they came out and attacked Israel. Well, Israel won, and they moved on, and they are now approaching Moab. But King Balak is worried, and the reason he's worried is all these Israelites on the edge of his territory. But Israel has beaten the Amorites. And in the past, the Amorites had beaten the Moabites. So the army is camping out near his territory, and they've already beaten people that have beaten them. So Balak is getting very worried at this point, and he sees a real danger. What can he do? And he decides to bring in some supernatural help, a spiritual big gun, the world-renowned seer and spiritualist uh, Balaam. And he thinks this guy can curse Israel, and then while they're under that curse, They'll be so disadvantaged, I'll be able to beat them in battle. So that's what he was thinking. Do you find that hard to relate to? You know, we're thinking of kind of bombs and weapons and military might, someone hiring uh, a soothsayer to curse a people. We find it kind of a bit hard in our material world to relate to that. But do you think there is spiritual reality in this world? Yeah, so maybe it's not too hard to release there is spiritual power both good and bad it has been said till recently there are no atheists in africa i think there probably are some now but generally you you move around africa you won't find atheists people are of one faith or another it's our part of the world that's particularly humanistic and materialistic and interestingly, the recent surveys in russia has shown that in the last three years those people in Russia identifying as atheists have gone down by half. So the number of self-confessed uh, atheists in Russia has halved just in the last three years. So 60 years of communism and atheism, but faith is rising again. The other interesting thing for me in the story is this Eastern mystic guy uh, connects with God. So you'd think he'd be kind of, whoa, this is totally evil. But he asked the Lord what to do. And it's interesting that God can work you know, beyond the bounds of, of church maybe that we set. And that ties us into the Christian uh, Christmas story. Think of guys from the East, the Magi, that heard from God and wanted to follow God and meet his new king. Anyway, Numbers 22 uh, God comes to Balak, Balaam and, uh, and asked him, who are these men with you? And Balaam says to God, 
Balak, son of Zippor, king of Moab, sent me this message. A people has come out of Egypt that covers the face of the land. Now come and put a curse on them for me. Perhaps then I'll be able to fight them and drive them away. But God said to Balaam, do not go with them. You must not put a curse on those people because they are blessed. That's what he heard from God. When this guy sought God, God said, don't put a curse on them because they're blessed. I bless them. And it's a frightening thing to be cursed or to be under a curse. And it's a wonderful thing to think that I can stand and live under the blessing of the living God. And that's marvelous. And you know, maybe the rest of the story, Balaam says, go away. And uh, they come back with more money. And then Balaam says, well, can I go now? And God says, yes. Uh, And then Balaam goes. And then God puts that angel of the Lord in the way with a sword. You think it's a bit weird. God said he could go, but then he blocked him. And it says God was angry. And maybe it's that sometimes we say, God, can I do this? And God says, no, don't do it. And then we go back to him and said, but I really want to do it. And then God says, okay, do it. But he's really hoping that we think again and we realize he doesn't want to do it. So when we do pursue it, he has to challenge us again. That's what happened here. And uh, if you put the next slide up, please, Scott. It's an interesting, there's a lot of irony about Balaam's donkey. The famous seer, uh, Balaam, couldn't see God's angel, but a donkey could. Balaam, a professional speaker, couldn't say anything worthwhile, but the donkey spoke eloquently. Balaam wished he had a sword to kill his donkey, but the donkey had saved his life by not letting him run into the sword of the angel. And the donkey was blessing a man who wanted to curse the people of God. So it's interesting how God turns all that around. And then God allows Balaam to proceed under strict instructions only to do what he's told him. And Balaam makes expensive sacrifices. He goes up on Bamoth, Baal, and he builds seven altars, and he sacrifices on all of them. Maybe that number seven, that complete number. He does everything he can to try and connect with a power to curse the people, but none of it works. And next slide, maybe And when he's on the hill, he does see that view, that cross, and you can't curse what God has blessed and what God is doing. And the next slide, please. Balak says to Balaam, what have you done to me? I brought you to curse my enemies, but you've done nothing but bless them. And he answered, must I not speak what the Lord puts in my mouth? He couldn't curse them. He had to bless them. We haven't got time to read it all. You can read those chapters and see the different ways that he blesses the people of God. And what I want to finish with is this idea of blessings and curses. And just to get hold of it for a minute. Sometimes we find it's hard that there's real significance in the words that we say. Oh, the words don't matter. They just kind of trip off my tongue. It doesn't mean anything. It doesn't do anything. That old thing, sticks and stones may break my bones, but names will never hurt me. Words won't hurt me. But words are very, very powerful. And we need to appreciate that again. If you've ever stood at front of a church building and said two words, I 
do. They've had a profound effect on your life, haven't they? Sam's shaking his head there. I was there, Sam. You said I do, and it has had a profound effect on your life for the better. If you say, I love you, or I hate you, that has real power. And the Bible affirms the power of words. Next slide, please, Scott, in Proverbs. Proverbs, oh, blessings and cursings. And then Proverbs twelve eighteen. The words of the reckless pierce like swords, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. The soothing tongue is a tree of life, but a perverse tongue crushes the spirit. The tongue has the power of life and death, and those who love it will eat its fruit. There's real power in the tongue. And there's also spiritual power. Next slide, please, Scott. Genesis 1 verse 3, God said, he released his word, let there be light, and there was light. In John's gospel, Jesus said in John 6.63, the words I have spoken to you, they are full of spirit and life. So if we release words, it has real, real power. Abraham was blessed in the story of the Torah. Genesis 12, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I'll make your name great. You'll be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you. And whoever curses you, I will curse. And all people on earth will be blessed through you. God's promise to Abraham. And that's been fulfilled fully in Christ and also through his people. And what's, what's probably your favorite verse in the book of Numbers? Yep. It's a verse of blessing, the high priestly prayer. The Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron and his sons, this is how you're to bless the Israelites. Say to them, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. It's a lovely blessing. We love to speak that over each other. We speak that over children when they're dedicated here, that's in the book of Numbers. There's good stuff there. It's about blessing. We need to move on quickly, but just to round up, Deuteronomy also talks about blessings and cursings. I've set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Choose life so that you and your children may live. Jesus was concerned about how people use their tongues and what words they said to each other. Matthew five twenty two. I tell you that anyone who's angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. He really warns more seriously than we would think about what we say to people. And that word Raka it could mean you're an idiot or it could, uh, could mean something else. Between the two words, one's insulting your intelligence and one's insulting your character. And Jesus has a very strong warning not to use those words. And then the book of James, this is in the, the message, says this. This is scary. You can tame a tiger, but you can't tame a tongue. It's never been done. The tongue runs wild, a wanton killer. With our tongues, we bless God our Father. With the same tongues, we curse the very men and women he made in his image. Curses and blessings out of the same mouth. 
It's frightening that we can curse. It's wonderful that we can bless. And there's real power in the tongue. And just as Balaam tried to curse God's people, and God says you can't because they're blessed, we need to be people that are living under the blessing of God, protected by the blessing of God. And we need to be people that are working out how to speak blessing, whether it's you prayed for someone and you've heard from God for them and you release that word, that's a blessing over their lives. And even in our daily interactions, we need to stop calling people idiots or stupid. And we need to work out by the grace of God and the the power that Jesus gives us over our minds and our tongues to release good into our world and release blessing. I wanted to mention Ella Chowdhury as well, just very, very briefly. And working on this, it made me think that she's such a lovely person. And it's one of the reasons, because she just spoke blessing to you. You felt good when you met her. You didn't feel you'd be cursed or (laughs) condemned or judged. You just felt blessed because she would speak words of blessing. And that's a wonderful testimony. We need to rein in the curses and we need to release the blessings. And, you know, I, I hear sometimes parents rebuking their kids and they say things like, you stupid, you're an idiot, you're evil, you hate your sister. And I'm just thinking, you're cursing them. You do need to challenge, you do need to discipline, but you don't need to curse. You don't need to call them evil or idiots. And you can say things like, that was a silly thing you just did then. Or you made a mistake there. Or that was wrong what you did to your brother. It's the one incident that was wrong that needs correcting. You're not cursing them for who they are as people. And too often I hear the other that's a real issue and I think the final kind of issue is and probably even a bigger problem is self-cursing self-cursing where we condemn ourselves and lots of us do it at the youth on uh, Friday night they had an excellent session on mental health and one of the guys was talking about something that comes out of his depression But he found himself saying, you're useless, you're a bad husband, you're a bad father, it's your fault this has happened, you're useless, you can never do this. And it developed into a depression. But those words and those thoughts out of his mouth were like self-cursing and it wasn't healthy spiritually. It was good that he shared he's in a better place and I love the way that he's been treated holistically. He's had prayer for healing, he's got antidepressants to correct chemical imbalance and he's done talking therapy, CBT, to help him think in the right way and I love that whole holistic approach and it's so, I'm so glad he's not kind of calling down curses on himself in the way he used to do and people say I'll never get on at work, I'll never tame my temper, I never have enough money, friends will always fail me. I'll never have a successful romantic relationship. People are calling down curses on themselves all the time. But the good news is that Jesus reverses the curse. 
He can turn things around. He can reverse the curse. And just thinking of Peter, he did that to himself. In Mark fourteen sixty six, it says this. While Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came by. When she saw Peter warming himself, she looked closely at him. You also were with that Nazarene Jesus, she said. But Peter denied it. I don't know or understand what you're talking about, he said, and went out into the entrance. When the servant girl saw him there, she said again to those standing round them, this fellow is one of them. Again, he denied it. After a little while, those standing near said to Peter, surely you're one of them, for you're a Galilean. Peter began to call down curses on himself. And he swore to them, I don't know this man you're talking about. Immediately the cock crowed the second time and Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken to him. And there's Peter, close friend of Jesus, person Jesus has chosen to lead the church, calling down curses on himself. It's a sobering warning and I think he probably felt excluded from God. He thought he'd completely failed. But what happened? What did Jesus do? When Jesus meets him again in John 21, he says, do you love me? And Peter finds that really, really hard that Jesus is questioning my motivation, questioning my love for him. But I think Jesus helps him to reverse the curse. Three times he said, I don't know him and I denied him. And Jesus gets him to say three times, I do love you, I do love you, I do love you. And that reverses the curse that was over him. And then because Jesus died on the cross to forgive us and break the power of the curse, then we can be redeemed and forgiven. And someone said that when cursing is an issue, you want to do three things. Repent, revoke, and replace. And Peter hopefully repented of saying those denials, Jesus helped him to revoke them by cancelling them out by saying affirmations. And then he finishes with a, a good confession of his faith in Jesus. So you replace the words you're cursing yourself with with words of faith in Jesus. Repent, revoke, and replace. And you can find real healing. And it comes back to the cross Galatians 3:13 Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us for it's written cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree in order that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to all the gentiles so that we might receive the promise of the spirit through faith and we have the cross shape of the people of God moving across the desert. We have the cross in the snake on the pole looking and living and receiving healing from the poison in our lives. And we can bless or curse. And we have Jesus reversing the curse and releasing God's blessing in our lives. And that's all just popping out of little bits of the book of Numbers. So it seems, as well as the Hebrew words, these books, the, the, maybe the heart of the target of the Hebrew Bible, 
is such richness as we can find the goodness of God in our lives. And he's going to make us people that release blessing into the world and not cursing. So I'd like us to pray and I'd like us to go out thinking, how can I bless? I'm under God's blessing. He protects me from other people cursing me. How can I release more blessing to others in Jesus' name? Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the wonderful truths in your word, even way back in how you dealt with your people in earlier days. And Lord, we say we are so thankful that we can uh, stand in the flow of Abraham's life and be blessed and be a blessing to the world. We thank you that evil people that want to curse us, those curses won't land because we're protected by your blessing. And Lord, we pray that we'll know what it is to be people that can release your blessing by what we do and what we say and what we pray and what we believe. We can release more of your blessing in this world. Lord, forgive us for all the times we've cursed other people or we've called curses upon ourselves. We thank you for that hot coal that Isaiah had that kind of burnt and purified his mouth. And Lord, we pray that under the inspiration of your spirit, we'll find ourselves releasing more and more blessing for your glory. Thank you, Lord. Amen.